0: Good morning. Today's passage comes from 2 Timothy 4, verses verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the
1: faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but
0: also to all who have loved his appearing. This is Lord's word. Thank you, Scott. Good morning, redemption. How are you? Good morning. I gotta check and make sure your mic is on. I was told it's not on. There, now it's on. Okay. Sabotaged? Yes, you were. (laughs) It was my idea. (laughs) So how are you doing? Yeah, okay, I had nothing else to say, that's why I said that. Anyway, glad that you're here. If you're new, we're glad you're here. My name is Frank, I'm one of the pastors here. This is Steve Wheeler, he's one of our elders on the Elder Board. I promised you uh, today that Joe Ponce, one of the other elders, would be doing this uh, with me, but over, uh, the, over Christmas, uh, Joe got um, COVID, and although he's been symptom-free since last Sunday, so now seven days... Um, he was not able to get tested again until Thursday, and he still doesn't have the results back of the test. He's probably over it, but we didn't want to take any chances. And so this morning I said, look, I've got Steve warming up in the bullpen, and he said, well, why don't we just do that? So it's like having Mariano Rivera... With the exception of that one little flaw in his in his um, career in 2001 when they faced the Diamondbacks, but uh,
2: Frank so. exaggerates a bit. I was called up from Pawtucket yesterday. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's about right. So anyway, we we have done this now the last four, five or six years, I think. Um, our founding pastor Tom Schrader for 30 years did something called Past Year Present Year where he would say, let's evaluate how last year was, let's look forward to how we can make this year even better uh, through different lens maybe than, than what the world might expect. And and um, I've been doing that, carrying on Tom's legacy and tradition uh, for the last five or six years uh, here. Um, and and this year I thought it would be more interesting if we had a conversation about it rather than me just getting up and kinda <clears throat> saying the same things that I say every year with a few additions. but. So that's what we're going to do. And so now Steve is going to do it with me instead of Joe, which frightens me because his nickname is actually the great interrogator. So I, I don't know how it happened, but in first service, I ended up being interviewed during the first. It's just, it's just one of those weird things that if you've ever had coffee with Steve, you know how this is how it goes. It, it, anyway, so I'm going to try to control this as best I can with you. My good brother. luck. So Yeah, good luck. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, this is also a sermon where if you're a note taker, this is like a note taker's paradise. There's a lot of notes and stuff. You can take pictures of the screens if you want, uh, lots of scripture that goes along with it. Sometimes we get to it, sometimes we don't. But here's how we start this process. We ask you, in your mind, um, if you were to evaluate, uh, if you were to rate on a scale of 1 to 10 how 2021 was for you, uh, what would it be? Would it be a 2? You never want to see a year like that again. Would it be a nine? You had a great year and you'd like to replicate it. Uh, is it a five? Just sort of meh, whatever. And, and uh, what Tom used to do, and I think he's right, is that uh, for many people, there are questions that you originally go to when asked uh, the question, how was your year? There are sub questions that you go to to kind of use as your grid for how your year was, and they look something like this. Did you make more money in 2021 than in 2020? Not necessarily did you keep more, but did you make more? I mean, maybe, maybe you made more, but you also expanded your debt, which I don't know how you rate that, but did you make more money? Did you improve your possession? Possession. Did you improve your position? <laughs> did you improve your possessions? I don't know, but uh, did you enhance your career? Questions like that. Did you get a new degree? Did you get a promotion? Uh, Did you get hired finally? You know, maybe that's something good that happened. Uh, Here's another one. Did you increase your influence over others? Um, Over the last 15 years, that one has actually become more and more important to a lot of people. It's about power and status. Uh, There's a book um, that James Davidson Hunter, he's a socialist, a socialist. (laughs) I have no idea what his position is on economic systems. (laughs) He's a sociologist. I don't need to ask clarifying questions. (laughs) He wrote a book and he said, look, social capital is the most important capital we have now in our world today. It may not not be right, but it's even more important than financial resources and all this other. He says, if you don't have social capital, you're in big trouble. Networking, those kinds of things. So that's become very important. And then uh, this last one, which is your favorite, did you cause envy or jealousy in other people? Uh, for some people, that's the most important question, because, that—that hey, I, I didn't make more money. I lost my job. Um, all of my friends walked away from me, but everybody's really jealous of me, so I had a good year. That's kind of how they evaluate it. Talk a little bit more about that.
2: Well, I've also uh, been going through these for at least 15 years with Tom every year. It's yeah. one of his teachings and stuff, and, and that one always struck me because it's a sort of a... The others are sort of sad commentaries on the status of your life, but this one sort of particularly is because in many cases it's that question of uh, did, did I cause envy or jealousy in others is really a way of saying much of my identity, if not all of it, is, is built around what other people think of me. Yeah. They, they think I'm, I, I've accomplished something that they are envious of or jealous of, and therefore that elevates my status in my own mind. So that shows sort of a complete bankruptcy of thought within yourself. <clears throat> Um, And and so I I always found that to be a a sad but accurate indicator of the status of somebody.
0: But the interesting thing about that is, and I'm glad you brought it up, is um, social scientists talk about this thing called self-concept. How do we come up with who we think we are, how we understand ourselves? And they say there are four factors that go into us building a self-concept, not self-esteem, but self-concept. And the number one factor is other people's images of us. In other words, what we think other people think of us. Tony Ranke, in one of his books, he says, it's silly that that is such an important factor because we don't know what other people think of us. Uh, we're only assuming that we know what other people might think of It's like three degrees removed from reality, and yet uh, a big part of our self-concept comes from, from um. Uh, from that factor. And the number two factor is actually something that we're going to talk about in just a minute when we talk about whether or not you had a good year of self-evaluation is uh, the social comparison process. Another way we come up with our self-concept is we're constantly comparing ourselves to others. And if you know anything about scripture, scripture's saying that's nah, not a helpful thing to do. So right out of the gate, the two biggest factors for us understanding our self-concept that the world tells us that research tells us, are, are really unhelpful in, in this evaluation. And yet we know for a fact that these are the things that we go to. And we got to kind of try to break those, that, that, that bondage of doing that. So, so if you were to evaluate your year based on these four questions, you might come up with a number, seven, two, whatever it might be. But now Tom says, hey, I've got, ai think, a better way for evaluating this past year. And he asks five questions. So so
2: he's distilled it down to five questions. uh, And you can obviously come up with your own variants on it. But but I think these encompass a fairly broad waterfront. And the the first one is, did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? Now now read that carefully. It doesn't say, did you conduct a self evaluation, although that's clearly implied. It didn't ask, did you like the results of your self-evaluation? It says, did you recognize the importance of a self-evaluation? And I think that's a subtle difference. And so help us understand, what's so important about a self-evaluation?
0: Well, Paul, Paul has some words for this in Galatians, and then we'll talk about how that's uh, uh, you know, practically applied. He, he writes in, a, in Galatians 6, If anyone thinks they're something when they are not, which is all of us (laughs) to some extent, they deceive themselves. They deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, not others. So here you have, right away, you have this idea of what other people think of you and uh, what other people, uh, comparing yourself to other people. He's got those two factors right in here. So he says, test your own actions, not others, so that they can find then find fulfillment in their own walk, their walk with Christ, their life with Christ, without comparing themselves to anyone else. And so for me, uh, and I know I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to say this, but it's true of anybody who claims Christ as their Savior. The way to, to first of all, evaluate yourself is, how are you walking with Christ? How is the gospel affecting your life? How are you manifesting yourself as an outward post uh, focused person? Is all of life uh, truly for, uh, for all, all for Jesus? And, and then I guess the question you would ask is, well, because you're always asking these follow-up questions, how do you do that? Is that the question well, you would ask?
2: Well, in part, but I'm still back on why do a self-evaluation in the first place? Uh, clearly, the Bible uh, and the passage Frank read would clearly compel you to do it, but the question is to, to what end? And the end, of course, is if you don't understand yourself, your actions, your thoughts, um, what you do and think and believe will be guided by what you think you are. And you, so you better understand that to make sure it's rightly ordered. And when I think of the self-evaluation thing, I, I think of uh, sort of the first thing I thought of was the business perspective, sort of a gap analysis for those of you who have conducted those. You figure out where you are in a particular situation, and compared to where you want to be, you figure out what that gap is, and then you take steps to address it. And then, just to show you how erudite I am, I I also conjured up a Shakespearean quote from Polonius in Hamlet where he said, to thine own self be true. That was before you saw the Shakespeare passage on let's kill all the lawyers, which was uh, (laughs) appropriate for JJ and Sam and some of the rest of you in here. Um, But my point is, it's been recognized that you really have to know who you are in order to be what you think you ought to be, which, of course, then raises the question, if you don't have a foundation on who you think you are or what you're meant to be or what your identity is, it is kind of a futile exercise. So to me, if you say, how do you conduct a self-evaluation, you got to start off by saying, who am I? Why am I here? And once you answer those, then you can say, okay, so how am I doing? And of course, I would direct us to the, again, so I can show you how erudite I am, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says the chief aim of man is to Glorify God God and enjoy him forever. forever. So if you start with that premise, that your identity and your purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that then allows you to say, well, how do I do that? And so now we start talking about what process should I go through in conducting a self-evaluation? And by the way, how many of you would confess to at least conducting a reasonably diligent self-evaluation on a periodic basis? you know it was interesting in the first service those who who were willing to raise their hand it was girl kind of like like this nobody did this i thought it was
0: a trick question yeah
2: <laughs> they're worried they get called out on it or be asked to explain it or something else but that that's pretty good
0: so, so so joe joe i know joe he's taught this many times and he loves the johari window for this question the johari window was something that was developed by a couple of um, scholars in 1947 that said that in order to understand the self, you have to understand that you have an open self. The open self is the self you're willing to show everybody. Then you have a hidden self. That's the self that ostensibly you know about yourself, but nobody else knows about you and it's the part you keep hidden from other people, probably for good reason. And Then there's the blind self. The blind self is what you don't know about yourself, but other people know about you. And then there's the unknown self, which is a whole other long conversation. But it's the, it's the blind self that we're trying to get through, uh, get to here. The blind self is what trips all of us up. Every one of us has a blind self. Every one of us has areas of our life that other people seem to know are problematic, but we're not aware of it. We're, we, we think we're motoring along just fine. And so this idea of self-evaluation, therefore, must involve trusted other people who are going to be able to come alongside of you, not use this information exploitatively, which is important, by the way, you have to be careful of that, but trusted people who are going to speak truth into your life in a way that you're going to be able to hear it. So they're going to be able to speak it um, without, uh, with criticism, but but with love, okay, so so that you can hear it.
2: So the things to do, we would say, would be enlist trusted people who could speak truth to you and then understand what you're actually trying to accomplish. So start with the end in mind in one respect. So let's go to the second one, because we found we we spent an awful lot of time on the ones of reflection on the retrospective year, but we also want to make sure we give enough time to talk
0: about how to determine, how to make. But before we move on. Yes. Uh, the question was raised in first service, and I think it's, it's helpful. I, I, do the self, I do a formal self-evaluation every year. I, how many of you have ever heard of a SWOT analysis? I know it's maybe passé already, but you know, it's not the newest thing, but I find it effective. So SWOT stands for uh, Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. So I do that one on myself and one on Redemption Arcadia. Every year uh, in submission to the elders, and I try to get other people's input on. It's not just me writing down what my strengths and weaknesses are. I try to get other people's input uh, on that. Those are some of the most difficult conversations I have during the year. But it's also really helpful because it gives us an idea of. It gives me an idea of what I need to work on. But it also gives us an idea of what we need to be working on for the congregation as well. Yeah,
2: and I can tell you from personal experience, uh, going through Frank's SWOT analysis with him is just a, a really helpful exercise, I think, both for you just having to write it down and then to hear the reactions we have right. um,
0: as to whether we're affirming or questioning some of the conclusions. you Yeah, think. I think it's a helpful exercise. So number two, in 2021, did you understand the value of your time? A couple of mistakes we make with time. We don't understand how valuable it is. Um, in, of all of our resources, time is the only one where we're all, we all have the same amount and you can't get more. So the question is, are you going to invest it or are you going to spend it? And, and I think that's an important question. Uh, but second of all, we also don't um, realize that time is not always our enemy. Sometimes time is a great ally of ours. We just don't realize it because we're so impatient. Anyway, talk a little bit about time.
2: Well, uh, you know, the, the dichotomy between spending it and investing it is, is really important. That tells you a lot about who you are and, and how you're spending your time obviously reveals a lot about the condition of your spiritual health Um, there's a a tendency that some of us mostly myself uh, but occasionally I found others who feel that way I I tend to spend much of my time reflecting on the past and then uh, worrying and planning about the future and not enough time being there and there's this old saying wherever wherever you are be there and I think that applies to, to time as well uh, Alistair Begg, and Frank has mentioned this before, how many of you are familiar with Alistair Begg? He's got this concept called uh, an inter- eternal retirement account, an ERA, not an IRA or an earn run average. Uh, but it's it's a way of saying, are you how are you spending your time? Are you actually creating um, a retirement account uh, that is eternal? And that's a, that's a good way of looking at, at how you're spending your time. So what are ways that we can purposely utilize our time?
0: So um, I, I think that, <clears throat> first of all, understanding what really is an investment of time. Uh, our, our staff actually spends quite a bit of time talking about the importance of Sabbath. It's so hard for so many people to take down time because they don't feel like they're investing it. They're spending that downtime. But really, that's that's an investment that God calls us to, is a Sabbath. And so I'm, I'm not saying don't work hard. We work hard, and I'm saying you should work hard, too. But there should also be a time when you're not working hard so that you can recreate yourself, so, so to speak, so that you can get uh, the needed rest, so you don't get uh, burned out. That's one thing. But uh, other things is, is when Beg talks about that, Uh, eternal retirement account. He's talking about, are you pursuing the things of Christ? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Are you serious about worship, word, and wisdom? And those would be the three things that are most importantly related uh, to God and, and to our faith community as well as pursuing worship, word, and wisdom. But to comment about your proclivity, to spend a lot of time fretting about the past and worrying about the future. I'm in that camp as well. Anybody else kind of that person? Yeah, okay, so here's how psychiatrists and psychologists would describe us. We are left brain personality type A people. Left brain personality A people. Is that bad? (laughs) Right brain people definitely think so. (laughs) Um, But left brain people tend to spend a lot of time worrying about the past and, and, and then uh, I'm, I'm fretting about the past and worrying about the future and not enough time right here, whereas right brain people are are much more about just living in the moment and and um, we have to recognize that there needs to be some balance we should um, learn from our past and we should plan for the future but those of us who are left brain people we also We also need to learn how to live in the moment. When we're on vacation, Jackie knows that about with three days left in vacation, I start to get kind of depressed because I know from the past that coming back from the vacation in the future, it's miserable. So I'm already worried based on past experience what my future looks like. And she's like, just enjoy those last three days of vacation. So she starts hammering me rightfully then. (laughs) You know about that, so we need to do a better job of living in the moment. Those of us on, on that are that are left brain, I think. And how do we do that? Be aware of it first of all. Yeah. And and, and hang out with right brain people who are willing to speak truth to you.
1: Yes.
0: So. And we
2: have to teach them to plan ahead, though, too. But we do have yeah. to
0: teach them to plan ahead. Yes. And not be so
2: impetuous. Yeah. Should we move on to number three? Or <laughs> yes. Go most? ahead. So the, uh, Tom's third criteria was, uh, exploratory question was, did your victories exceed your defeats? Sort of like, what's your one loss record? Uh, What does that mean?
0: Yeah, it's not about a one loss record. Really, the way, here's the way I see it. Um, it, It's the idea that, uh, the way Paul describes it in, in Scripture, the way Jesus describes it in Scripture you are winning if you are persevering. You are winning if you are staying in the game. You are winning if you recognize that the goal is the eternal weight of God's glory and not some. It's not not that short-term victories aren't important or aren't good. I'm all for that. But if that's all you're pursuing, you're gonna fall short. So for me, victories exceeding defeats means staying in the game, persevering, doubling down on what God is calling you to do. And
2: and I think really importantly to that point is what it's not. It's not I won, somebody lost. Yeah. It's I persevered through it. I may not have gotten the outcome I desired. Somebody else may have gotten that outcome. But that's not the measurement. It's the perseverance. It's doing its God's way through thick and thin. And and
0: the six questions we're going to ask for how to make 2020 a good year really fit into this category of what does victory look like. So when we get there, you'll see that. So. Okay. So
2: somewhat related, is his fourth uh, metric was, did you finish well? That sort of sounds like there was an end, yeah. and, and he he won, or at least placed. Is that what he's talking about?
0: So again, it's it's having this eternal perspective in mind. Um, Paul says in 2 Timothy, which was read, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finishing well means keeping the faith. So uh, I feel like I finished 2021 well. I kept the faith in in the face of really trying times. And by the way, I don't know that it's going to get any easier in 20... Some of you are like, I can't wait for 2022. Obviously, it's going to be better than 2021. I'm I'm not even a glass half-empty guy. I don't have a glass. 2022 may be harder than 2021. I want you to realize that. Keeping the faith is what's important. That's how you finish well. Um, In Ecclesiastes 7, Solomon says it's more important to finish well than to get a fast start. That's that's what's important. So back in the 80s, when
2: I was in the prime of a, a career, uh, the, the mantra, and people even had t-shirts that said this, the man with the most toys wins. Yeah. So that's, that's not what we're talking about
0: here. No. Um, in fact, uh, it's been said, I don't know if this is legend, myth, or truth, but it's been said that when Aristotle, I'm sorry, when Alexander the Great, who was Aristotle's uh, student, when Alexander the Great died, um, he was the richest man in the world at the time. And he, was, and he said, um, put me in my coffin with my arms outstretched to let everybody know that everything that I acquired, I was not able to take with me. So even in his death, he was still being a philosopher and a theologian.
2: Well,
0: you know. I don't think he was a Christian, though. Uh, he died before Jesus came, so no. Fair enough. So Tom's
2: final question for 2021, which kind of in one sense uh, covers all of the points that are in the previous four is, did you anticipate the return of Christ? So when he says it that way, what, what does that anticipation look like? I mean, we're, we're told we don't know when he's coming, uh, right. but we're, it may be like a thief in the night for all we know. But, so how, how are we supposed to anticipate it?
0: Did your victories exceed your defeats? Are you persevering? Did you finish well? Are you keeping the faith? Are you anticipating the return of Christ? Um, You asked me once, of these five, which is the most important? And I think number five is the most important because if you are a person who is anticipating the return of Christ, that means that you are in Christ, you are a gospel-centered person, and you are allowing uh, your gospel-centeredness to infect and influence all of your life. And that's, that's how you best anticipate the return of Christ. I, I don't think his return is imminent. I've been told by a lot of people, look around at the world. It's obvious that he's, he's putting on his sandals. He's getting ready to come back. They've been saying that for 2,000 years. I still think we have a ways to go. But we still need to anticipate his return, because someday he is going to come back.
2: So you hear sometimes people will- Will say you ought to uh, live as if uh, Christ were coming tomorrow, and you have to give an account of yourself. And they, they then ask, "Are you ready to be Christ?" Yeah. Is, is that a legitimate question? Is that a same saying the same thing here, or is that just trying to strike fear into you?
0: Yeah, I I get the question, and but I struggle with it a little bit because I think it's a fear-based question, mm-hmm. and I'm and I'm more and and that. That works for some people, but I've been more about building relationships and then having those conversations. And frankly, my, if I may be frank, my opinion, my opinion is that if you, if you are in Christ, you're anticipating the return, you're ready for him. And, and even if, even if you're having a bad day, if you're in Christ, you're ready for him. And if he comes, that's going to be good news.
2: So what do, you, what do you say to people who, when said, if you knew Christ was coming a week from now, what would you do differently? And they start reading off all these things. What, what do you say to that? Say, I, yeah, Why I hate, haven't I, you done them yet?
0: I hate that question because I just start eating ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> Why bother eating healthy if he's coming in a week? That's, that's seriously my response. I'd be like, I'm going to live you know, pretty slothfully the next week. So can, can we take? Can so we take my opinion, the my, uh, that's an honest answer. My opinion is, it's good we don't know when he's coming. You know, I prefer the bumper sticker that says, um, "Jesus may be coming. Look busy." That's what I prefer. Okay. Where did you go to seminary? It's a place called Fuller. Fuller. It's in California. That should explain everything. <laughs> So have you
2: actually graded yourself on 2021?
0: I, I have, yeah. <laughs> I haven't settled, but I'm in a range. I'm, I'm in the seven to nine area. Okay. And the reason I, I believe I'm there is and that, because before I- Before you explain that, okay. how does that relate to prior years? Is that the same, or? Uh, it, the irony is that 2021 has been one of the hardest years I've been involved in. And I feel like my rating has been higher because I've been more focused. Um, and because I've, I've taken this grid even more seriously this year than any other year. And because I'm having important conversations with people who are close to me who are pushing me to delve deep. So are you also
2: uh, sort of bathing yourself in James when he says to count all trials as joy? Is that why you've got a higher mark?
0: Yeah, because the testing of your faith, that's the key to that. Yes. It's testing the faith. Um, I had this, I I mentioned this at first service. I had this backstories conversation with another pastor, Luke Parker, I've known his family for more than 30 years. He's a pastor in Central Phoenix. And and towards the end of that conversation, we both started talking about how, um, this is in April, I think we had this conversation. Um, Wherever you were in life when the pandemic started, it seems like the pandemic just threw gasoline on it. If, If your faith in Christ was growing, the pandemic threw gasoline on that and you got closer to Christ. If your your marriage wasn't very good, the pandemic threw gasoline on that and probably challenged it even more in an accelerated pace. Uh, And both of us came away from that conversation realizing that after 13 months of the pandemic, we were more determined to make sure that church was important because faith was that much more important in the midst of all these trials that the pandemic has brought us. And it wasn't just the pandemic, it was everything that came along with it. That's good. You know. So
2: uh, <clears throat> let us, us left-brain people now, look at how we can worry okay. about 2020.
0: You really wanna move on, don't you? Well, yeah, yeah I yeah, wanna okay. worry about yeah. 2022. <laughs> okay. How,
2: how did Tom tell us we can best focus on making 20? 22, the best year
0: ever. Well, again, I can tell you in preparation with this for Joe, um, Joe's best, most important one for him was number one, work to improve relationships. So talk a little bit about that or ask your clarifying questions. Well, yes, I, I see a
2: general statement like that and I'm going, what do you mean by improve? What relationships are we talking about? Personal, professional, church relationships, how do I approve it? The question yeah. begs so many answers I don't have.
0: So uh, my assumption here is that if you're in the marketplace, if you're a, if you're a career person, if you have a job, uh, you're already working on those marketplace relationships very hard because you have to in order to, to uh, earn an income, to be successful in your career. You're already working on those relationships, so I'm not quite as worried about those. The problem is, is that, <clears throat> and I was in the marketplace for 20 years before I became a pastor, so I get it, Working on those relationships often comes at the expense of those other relationships that are even more important. You just don't realize they're more important. So your uh, marriage, your family, your romantic relationships, your friendships, your faith community relationships, those relationships are the ones that really, I think, need the work. And, and, I, and, and here's one of the problems I have with this. Um, and Trey, you can back me up on this. The rest of the pastors, we hear this all the time. Um, people try to get involved in church, and then they complain that um, nobody reaches out to them, nobody is their friend, nobody will go to anything, it's it's all everybody else's fault, and they never stop to think, maybe I should be doing these things that that I'm expecting everybody else to do. Maybe what you need to do is reach out and text somebody, email somebody, ask them out for coffee. Maybe you need to take that uncomfortable but important first step of going to a redemption community, going out to coffee uh, with somebody, whatever, whatever that might be. Trey said the other day in a staff meeting, and it was so good that I wrote it down, he said, now listen to this. I said this to Steve and he was like, well, that sounds really erudite, but I don't get it. So. I'm going to teach you something here, Steve. Okay, so Trey Trey said this. He said, we are formed more by practices than by understanding. We are formed more by practices (laughs) than by understanding. Here's what he's saying. It's really easy to gain a lot of knowledge and know what to do. The question is, are you going to do it? You're formed when you actually go out and do it, when you actually practice what knowledge you have gained. There are so many people in the church and and I'm guilty of falling into this category sometimes as well. I'm so puffed up with knowledge and 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 so action, sorry, constipated, okay? I need to I need to get out there and start doing things and so do you. That's how you improve these relationships. Be the person that makes the first move. Step out of your comfort zone and you'd be surprised how great it is. I will tell you I am, I, I am George Costanza. I, I, never, I never scheduled a meeting where I wanted the other person to show up. I am George Costanza. Yeah. And yet the reality is, after every meeting I have, I'm like, I'm really glad that meeting happened. After every time I go to somebody's house or a gathering or an RC, I'm thinking, man, I'd rather stay at home with Netflix. And then I go, and I'm like, that was better than Netflix. It's actually going out and doing something. We are formed more by practice than we are by understanding.
2: So this sounds like a lot of hard work. Uh, it, how, many, sure. how many biblically deep relationships could we
0: expect to have at one yeah. time? So there's a guy named Robin Dunbar who's done all kinds of research um, uh, in the social science world that says that uh, human beings on average are capable of having 150 acquaintances in their life, acquaintances. But then he says, in order to have seriously deep relationships, you have the capacity for eight to ten of those. Okay? And so, and he, and he says, you know, have those acquaintances and be a networker. All of that is good and important. But you need to really be working on those eight to ten deep relationships. And you need to be careful about who those people are going to be. Are they really there for free? Are they reciprocating the idea of serving uh, others? Are they? Uh, Do they have the mind of Christ? Uh, Are are they interested in being outward-focused? Does that mean we shouldn't develop meaningful relationships with non-Christians? No, that does not mean that. In fact, some of the deepest relationships I have are with people who don't share my faith, but I'm hanging in there because God has called me to... There there are some where it's like, I feel like the Spirit is saying, look, this isn't going to work out. But there are others where I'm hanging in there. I feel like the Spirit is saying... This is going to be a slog, and it's going to take some time. And so I hang in there with that. And, yeah, I think, I think you need to develop those, um, those relationships with non-Christians as well so that you can have some empathy and understanding for other perspectives. I think that helps us. Well, and in fact, how can you reach them if you don't have
2: a relationship? Right. right. That's okay. exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So, so Tom's second point, and I think it kind of molds into a couple of uh, subsequent points is desire and increase in freedom. And you like tying that into, is it his
0: third one? As well? Third one, con- consider your passion and zeal. Is it for Jesus in the gospel? Okay, so what does that mean to you? So <clears throat> Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, God paid a high price for you. So don't be enslaved to the world or by the world. Brothers and sisters, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. What Paul is saying there is be careful we're all going to serve something. Be careful that what you're serving is in fact the one true God. It doesn't mean that you're not involved in, in worldly things. It doesn't mean that you're not serving your employer, your marketplace, your family, uh, your relationships, all of that stuff, even your pleasures and desires. It doesn't mean that. Are you elevating those other things that you're serving into a godlike status? That's the key. And so, Your passion and zeal at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of the year should always be ultimately for Christ. How are those things leading to that passion for Christ? Paul says it in in, uh, Romans chapter 9 where he says, uh, he he takes an oath in his letter to the uh, church at Rome and he he says, I'm not lying when I say I would give up my salvation if all of Israel could be saved. His burden is that most of Israel, God's people, have walked away from the true Messiah, and he's saying, I would give up my salvation if the rest of my brothers and sisters could be saved. That's genuine passion and zeal for something that goes beyond just your own personal desires and pleasures.
2: So given the, you've had a life in the marketplace before you you committed it to uh, ministry. Uh, So when Tom talks about an increase in freedom obviously <clears throat> being freed from the bondage of other things so that you could have more freedom. What would be an example of some things that you not that were sinful, but things yeah. that you had to give up in order to have more freedom to serve?
0: In fact, I would argue that it's not the sinful things that are our biggest problem in this freedom area. It's 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 more the things that distract us. Um, and I, this is just one aspect, but I'll use it as an example. Uh, at the end of this, uh, when, I, when I list the books that I would help Hopefully, recommend that you read one of them is is uh, the book Deep Work by Cal Newport. Has anybody read that book, Deep Work by Cal Newport? Really, really important um, book. Um, and and his his thesis is that the greatest tool and asset that you can have in the marketplace going forward in this world today is the ability to focus and do deep work. But the problem is is that we're all too distracted by shallow stuff. So. He lists email as shallow stuff. He lists social media as shallow stuff. He lists our phones as shallow stuff. How, how many of you know that you have a big... Pro- how many of you students know that you have a paper to write and you got your phone there and you're just wishing that that little ding would go off so that you could look at your phone rather than concentrate on your paper? And what he's saying is that those who are going to succeed are the ones that can really focus and do deep work, undistracted work. Does that include giving up Seinfeld, Hart... It, the Blackhawks, to an extent, yes, it does. And by the way, the way the Blackhawks are playing right now, it's easy to give them up. But at any rate, <laughs> at, at any rate, um, to an extent, yeah. You, it's not that those things are bad, but you need to have some boundaries. You need to. He talks about how do you have three hours a day where you turn everything off and you focus. Three hours. That's all he's asking about. Um, think of it this way. Are you filling yourself up on spiritual junk food? We talked about that last Sunday. Are you filling yourself up on spiritual junk food? I like the daily bread thing. I get it, okay? You pull out a verse, you read the verse, and you got like a two-sentence paragraph describing the verse. Okay, that's okay, but it's not enough. It's it's like a bag of Cheetos in a way. What you need to be able to do is sit down and read Paul's letter to, to the Philippians for 20 minutes and get the whole thing and be able to digest it and ruminate on it. Uh, This is not a perfect analogy, but it works for me. I I love Mexican food, and I love Italian food. Can I get an amen? Yeah, Okay. So here's the problem, though, with Mexican and Italian restaurants, if they're any good. The minute you sit down in those restaurants, they bring you a bowl of chips and salsa or a, a, a hot loaf of bread and butter, Okay. What's the problem with that? You're looking forward to the entree, which is really going to feed you, but instead you fill up on chips and salsa or bread and butter. And, and then you pay $50 for the entree and you didn't even eat it because you had the chips and salsa. You were filled up on junk food, okay? We do the same thing with our spiritual lives. We're looking on Twitter. We're looking at bumper stickers. We're getting a little Oprah-ism, and we think that we're good to go, and we're not. We, 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 need, to, we need to develop this discipline To be able to sit down with God's Word and be able to read through it large chunks at a time with understanding. And if you struggle to do that, you've got to invite a friend in to help you doing that. You've got to find somebody who's good at it. I wasn't good at it at first. I invited a friend, Ed Dawkins, to sit every week and read with me with understanding. And that really helped me. Now I do it. I wake up in the morning now. And I can't wait to get to God's word because I know it's going to fill me. But it fills me when I, when, I, when I really have time set aside, away from the phone, away from the dogs, away from all the distractions. We have three dogs. Away from all of the distractions, and I'm able to just be with God contemplating his word and his wisdom. So I'm sorry, I went on a rant there. No, that's, that's <laughs> great.
2: Uh, yeah, when Frank says, or when Tom says, consider your passion and zeal. Just those terms, passion and zeal, kind of scare me. I don't know whether you guys have passion meters and wonder, wondering how, how high you rate on the passion meter with respect to your commitment and your life to the Lord. But it kind of scares me. So one of the things we talked about in the first service was how can you ratchet that up a bit in passion and zeal? Uh, Frank's talked about a couple of ways. One of the ways that's worked for me is Uh, have an exemplar in your life or two people you know a spouse a a member of the family friends people here at church that show that passion and zeal and I'm sure you all know folks that are passionate for the Lord and it shows itself in so many ways and if you can see if they can do it you know maybe you need to understand what their secret sauce is you know who who are they for you I sleep with a lady named Ann who will go unknown or (laughs) unmentioned uh, by name Um, it's my wife in the first service, I said that I people so. are going. Well, what's their relationship? Well, it's, it's my wife. <clears throat> uh, she, she is extremely passionate and zealous for the Lord. Her enthusiasm, uh, her excitement about what she reads and what she gets to do is just—it's contagious. Uh, and when you know you believe the same things, but you see people acting them out with more enthusiasm and excitement, it—it it can't help but stir you in the same way. So, I found that to be really helpful. So, if you kind of Think you have low T uh, for the for the man that's low testosterone. If you have low P here, you know, t- hitch yourself to somebody who who seems
0: to have it. Uh, and I think that will be. I'm getting a little personal here.
2: Aren't yeah, I? you are.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so faith-based relationships are helpful in that regard. I know Jackie has many of those that really build her up. I do too. Um, but also, but also being driven to. Uh, Uh, reading and contemplating the Word of God, I think that is a really big one. And if you're not good at it, you can get good at it, but it'll take a little bit of work, and it'll take some vulnerability to be able to invite somebody into your life to help you do that.
2: Oh, one other thing I've discovered that's helped me a lot is when I read the Bible now, I also listen to it being read to me at the same time. It it forces me to contemplate it at a slower pace than if I'm just reading it. I'm so used to trying to speed read stuff but I just kind of yeah. go through it too quickly. But having somebody intonate it uh, yeah. with conviction at the same time, I think, has really been helpful. All right, Understand? number four. Yes.
0: Expand your perspective. And you believe that four, and I agree with you, leads into five, uh, which is a commitment to a strengthening of spirit. So expand your perspective. What we use here is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi where he says, and he's actually praying for the church in Philippi, In chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 and he says this and it is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more with what feelings and desires no he says I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment he redefines what love is not in a worldly way but in a Christ-centered way that love is something that is an action it's a verb it's a commitment It's an understanding and it's rooted in wisdom. And the way you get that is by first loving God and allowing him to love you and showing you his grace and mercy. And he says, in order to be able to do that, you may approve what is excellent and so to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Um, I'll be the first to admit, when I first met and married Jackie 35 years ago, I had passion for her. Okay, I had tremendous passion for her. Uh, and it wasn't a bad passion, but it also wasn't the ultimate passion. And as I've gotten to know Christ over the last thirty-five years better and better, and known God's Word, I've developed a better passion for, G, for for Jackie, and that is a passion to live with her and be with her as a Christ-centered husband, so that I'm living and serving her, and I'm understanding her. It doesn't always work because I'm still in my flesh, and I'm still sinful. But my greatest desire is to love her with all wisdom, insight, and discernment so that I'm loving her out of the overflow that God has loved me.
2: Yeah, that's good. So when, when Tom says expand your perspective, I'm trying to think of the word perspective, perspective just being a little bit of a literalist there. Well, what's he mean by perspective? Well, what is perspective? It's your way of looking at something. And so I'm, I'm thinking, so what's important about the way I look at things? And I realize there's only one thing important. What am I called to do in my faith? I'm called to understand God's perspective and conform myself to what God's perspective is and then in the likeness of his son. So trying to figure out how I view, you know, when you ask people, well, what's your view on that? You know, you remember the old bumper sticker, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, after a while, you realize it doesn't matter whether you believe it, if if God says it, that, that settles. settles it. Yeah. yeah. So understanding the perspective, it isn't, what's my own personal opinion? My personal opinion should be the same as God's personal opinion. I need to rightly understand God's perspective on the particular issue. And then that becomes
0: my perspective. It's only a few verses later after what I just read in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul says, have the same mind in you, you that was in Christ." Christ Jesus. Jesus. Yes. So I need
2: God's perspective so that I can conform myself to the Son. Yeah.
0: And how does that lead into a commitment uh, to a strengthening of spirit?
2: Well, one of the phrases Frank uses uh, frequently that always resonates and stays with me is, we need to welcome the spirit, the Holy Spirit, into our lives. And that creates uh, us, just the way you phrase that suggests, well, you mean sometimes I don't welcome him? Doesn't he come in anyway? Um, (laughs) Doesn't he just barge in irrespective of my views on the subject? (laughs) I don't quite fully understand that, but I don't think the answer is yes. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. That means we do things that grieves the Spirit, which means one of the gifts God has given us is a degree of of agency and autonomy to to not pay as much attention to the Holy Spirit as we should, even though the Holy Spirit is wonderfully powerful in our lives in discernment and wisdom and encouragement and all kinds of other things. But we can negate that by, by frustrating it and grieving it. And so if you want to get more passionate, if you want to have a greater perspective, you, you need to welcome the Holy Spirit yeah. into your life.
0: That, that whole perspective came from a conversation I had three or four years ago with Aaron Daly, who pastors Alhambra, Redemption Alhambra. Uh, we talked about how sometimes people will pray, uh, God, uh, would your Holy Spirit please show up here with us? And, and we're kind of going, the Holy Spirit's already there. You don't need to pray that what you need to pray is that we would welcome him. Yeah. He's already present, and how he gets grieved is by us turning away from him, by not orienting ourselves towards him and receiving him and taking on his perspective in life. Paul says, um, uh, do not be a fool, do not do foolish things, but rather be filled with the Spirit.
1: Yeah.
0: It's the, an- the antithesis of, of, uh, of wisdom is to turn away from the Spirit. So,
2: so those were... Uh Tom's five, but but wait, there's more. Uh, We added one last
0: year. We have a number six. We added it last year. Um, Don't fall into the cultural temptation of painting yourself as a victim. Uh, This has become such a problem that um, the authors Campbell and Manning, and I've mentioned this book before, and I'm going to keep pounding on it. You need to read this book. They wrote a book called uh, The Rise of Victimhood Culture. There are a couple of sociologists, PhDs in sociology, and they said, the rise in victimhood culture is a problem. You need to recognize it and don't fall for it. I highly recommend um, the book. I read it in print. I'm assuming it's available in audio as well for those of you that prefer listening to it. But don't, don't fall into that. Uh, if, especially if you're a Christ follower, you, you cannot. You're not even allowed to fall into that uh, victimhood culture.
2: Yeah, and surprisingly, so many people uh, seem to revel in yes. having an identity as a victim.
0: Yes. Uh, because it
2: excuses a whole lot of things that are going on in their life.
0: Yeah, yeah, Jesus. But my, my, my identity is really in the fact that I, I'm a victim. And, and here's the truth. When, the Holy, when you do welcome the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth to you, you begin to understand that the Holy Spirit is telling you, you're a sinner and you've fallen short of God. You are a victim of Adam and Eve's sin. You are a victim. But the Holy Spirit never illuminates something, reveals something to you without also calling you to something. And so when he, when he illuminates and reveals to you that you are a victim of sin, he also calls you to now be somebody who is going to be transformed and go out and be uh, an evangelist, go out and be an ambassador for Christ. And so that's how we walk away from that victimhood culture and we become servants of others.
2: So we've gone through 2021 and how to have... 2022 would be the best year of your life. We can't let you go without having you talk to us about your favorite books.
0: All right. Um, I've actually had people walk up and go, we're going to get the book list today, right? Yes. Yeah, so my top five books from 2021, and it was hard. I really had to cut it down to nine books. My top five is actually nine, and here they are. You've heard some of these already. Cynical theories. you got to read or listen to this. you got to read it. Uh, Irreversible Damage. If you recall, on the second Sunday of 2021, I had just finished Irreversible Damage and I said, I'm not waiting until the first Sunday of 2022 to tell you to read this book. This is really important. And the author, Abigail Schreier, has been all over everything uh, the last year as well. Not a Christian, politically left of center, and yet she's got this, um, uh, this gender thing pretty much nailed. Okay, And it's if, you, if, you have, if you're a parent and you have kids, or are planning to have kids, you need to read Trier's book. Um, Carl Truman wrote the book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Every person that I've recommended that book to who read it came back to me and said, that was an amazing book. I'm glad I read it. Really important. Uh, this book by Douglas Murray, who's an atheist, The Madness of Crowds. Amazing! You should read this book, too. It's all about... The Madness of Crowds and how we're getting sucked into the madness that's happening. Uh, there's Deep Work. Uh, I highly, I, Deep Work might be my number one book of this last year, really helpful, because it's so practical in so many ways. Um, the same guy that recommended to me Deep Work walked up to me one Sunday and handed me Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. Has anybody ever read that book? It's an old book. It was written in 1985, published in 1986. It's more applicable today than it was in 1986. This guy, this guy is a prof, not a Christian, but he's a prophet. He understands the Bible and has a biblical worldview on a lot of things. Um, but I'm telling you, this book is more applicable today than it, um, than, than, uh, than it was when he wrote it. This friend of mine walked up to me and handed it to me and said, if you haven't read this, which I hadn't, I've heard of it, he said, you need to read it, and I read it, and it was amazing. Um, chapter 8, where he applies his theories to religion, was so good that I made our staff one day on, at staff meeting, I made you sit and listen to me read Chapter 8 to you. Remember that? They were stunned. I don't know if it was stunned by the audacity of me, re, me reading an entire chapter to them or by how erudite uh, Neil Postman is. Um, team of Rivals is, I think, the, um, the consummate... Um, uh, biography of Abraham Lincoln and um, how he turned his political rivals into allies, and that's one of the reasons he became so successful. It's a great book. It's a very long book, uh, about 800 pages. Um, also, I, I reread The Pastor by Pe- uh, Eugene Peterson. It's his memoir. If you're in ministry in any way, shape, or form, it's a great book to read. It's, it's a wonderful book. I'm glad I reread it. And then uh, the last one is um, A Gentleman in Moscow. I know you've read that book. Has anybody else read A Gentleman in Moscow? Okay, Yeah, this is a book that I never would have read. Again, this buddy of mine uh, recommended it to me. He got three books on my list that he recommended to me this year. Um, I never would have read it if he hadn't recommended it. It's more than 900 pages. Um, It's thick. It's deep. but it's so well written and so beautiful, the narrative is so beautiful, that even when you think the story isn't going anywhere, and believe me, the story is going somewhere, but sometimes you don't think it is, you're so mesmerized by this, this uh, Toll's ability to describe things and write that you just keep reading. It's very similar to my experience with East of Eden, which I kind of had the same experience with that book as well. The first 150 pages of East of Eden, I thought, is there a story to this book? But I kept reading because it was so well-written that I just, I just wanted to keep reading. Anyway. So um, how many of those books have to be read to get a discount on, ties? on tithing? <laughs> if you can demonstrate through quizzes that I will administer and proctor, uh, that you have read all nine of those books. That's, that's what, how, how you have so to. So get it. one percentage point off? Yeah, one, 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 one percent, yes.
2: Anything more you'd like to add today? I have nothing.
0: Would you close us in prayer? Uh, I will.
2: <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Uh, I, I hope you're pleased with us that rather than expositionally preaching today, we've, we've talked about how we can best understand and live out your world. Uh, live out our lives in your world to your satisfaction under your plan in faithful obedience to you. Uh, thank you for this church. Uh, they mean so much to, to all of us. Uh, we we hope that you will continue to infuse it uh, with your Holy Spirit. We welcome the Holy Spirit in all aspects of our lives. Uh, help us to always have an attitude of, of sacrifice and humility. Thinking others more important than ourselves. Let us start the new year with an eye toward how we can make it The best year ever, but the best year by your standards, not by our standards. Thank you for Frank and the staff and the wonderful job they do. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Hey, can we thank Steve for jumping in at the last minute and helping out with this? Appreciate it. Good job. So we're going to have our time now of uh, reflection and response. We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing two songs uh, together as we do this. And I just want to remind us, really why we're here as much as it's important to do these evaluations and think about next year the reason we're here is because of the gospel of Christ on that last night that Jesus was alive here on earth he's with his friends they're having the Passover meal and he changes the Passover meal and he says I am now the lamb I am the lamb of God the final sacrifice I'm getting ready to go to the cross and to symbolically memorialized that. He took the bread for his disciples and he broke the bread and he said this is my body which is for you. His body was going to the cross. It was going to be broken on the cross so that we could be put all back together again by his sacrifice before God and, and once they had eaten the bread he then took the cup with the wine and he said this is the, the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood which is going to be poured out For the forgiveness of your sins. And he's also referencing the cross, which he's about to go to, where his blood is going to be shed. The last time that sacrificial blood had to be shed for the sins of God's people, he says, it is finished on the cross. And so he, he says, do this in remembrance of me. We're called every time we get together to do this in remembrance of the sacrifice that he has made for us. And Paul tells us later in one of his letters that every time that we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. And so what communion is, when you step out into that aisle to come and get a kit, what communion is, it is a confession on our part that we are in desperate need of a Savior because we're sinners. But it is also, and here's the good part, it is also a celebration that we have a Savior in Christ Jesus, that he's done the work that we couldn't do, he's done the work that we would never want to do, and yet we get to live in righteousness and holiness because of that work. And so come and celebrate the communion with our Lord Jesus Christ now.
3: church. Thanks for being here and worshiping with us. Uh, we could just have easily done our normal diet of expository preaching, which we love, but we could also do this very practical conversation of saying, seek first the kingdom of God. And so that's what we got to do, and it was in a colorful and in Exciting way, just like expository preaching is, and we're just really excited that we could have one off uh, Sunday like this, that we could be formed in the image of Christ, form our life into the image of Christ by a conversation between two guys that God's working in, which is just really what it was. So uh, today's Orientation Sunday. If you've been coming for a little bit, or if you're new, I'd love to talk to you and meet you. I'll be in the back of the Connect Desk less than 10 minutes. We just walk around the church campus and then I cut you loose, good to go. Or you can hang and we can talk a little bit longer, that works too. Uh, So I'm going to break, once we break, I'm going to go in the back and you can come and meet me and I'd love to meet you. Let me pray this over us as we go into our week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forevermore. Church, love you. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.